So just to say, uh, welcome to the this day long on the uh, Four Noble Truths in Action, Feeding Your Demons, which uh, I'm excited about. And um, just to say that uh, I asked Tusika Bakuni and I have uh, been friends for some time. We've talked together a few times, and she's been uh, really... Uh, Helpful and inspirational to my Sangha in San Jose, the San Jose Bravo Punks group. And uh, it's doing also a lot of work, and hopefully, maybe, I don't know if it'll fit with today, but to talk about uh, the work that you're doing with the Global Hunger Relief. And is that what it's called? Hunger Relief? Buddhist Global Relief. Buddhist, Buddhist Global Relief, which is a, uh, an organization kind of started by uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. And um, yeah, so just really happy that you're here and excited about the topic, and uh, thank you all for being here. And just so you know, we'll also we'll be taking lunch around 11:30 and have a bit of a kind of a food blessing. Uh, so it'd be helpful if you could stay until then, uh, if not throughout throughout the whole day. And then, um, yeah, plenty of food. So I have had the pleasure of being here in this room a number of times, and usually it's been as an attendant to more senior bhikkhunis over the years. And it's nice to be able to come and... Ah, microphone maybe is not on. I think it is on. on? Okay, let's... Ah, it needs to be closer. Okay. No, this is good. This is good. Thank you. Um, so anyway, I'm really happy to be here, and I um, I find this topic really intriguing and interesting and inspiring. So usually, when the person has to talk about it, it feels that way you're in better shape than <laughs> if not. So um, as I was thinking about today, I was reflecting on how amazing it is to be in a human form, to be in this in this world here, and, um, you know, just to be able to sit here and look at you, and for any of us to be able to see and hear and make sense of what we're seeing and hearing and so on. It's amazing. And of course, that's the the very stuff that can get us into trouble because it's that contact with sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, thoughts that lead us into clinging and craving and suffering. But it's also the very point, the very mechanism that we can use to become free. So when I think about the human experience being amazing, uh, I remember one time hearing a teacher say, do you know what the most amazing thing is about humans? It's that we're all going to die and we keep acting like it's not going to (laughs) happen. And it's true, isn't it? We just live like, you know, most of it, most of the time, most of us, 
Although sometimes we get some really uh, strong reminders that that that's that's where the where it's going to end up, and it helps us to be more careful and conscious in our choices about how we spend our time and what we do. Um, I stayed with my friend Elaine back there last night. I haven't seen her in a couple of years. It was really nice to be able to come down yesterday and, and be here overnight. And uh, one of the things I shared with her is that when, uh, as a bhikkhuni, living most of the time as the only bhikkhuni, so lay women may come and stay, and sometimes other bhikkhunis do too. But I spend quite a bit of time uh, going places by myself. And when a, when a man shaves his head to join the sangha, it's not nearly as big a deal as when a woman shaves her head to join the sangha. When I was so keen to become a nun, I really didn't understand that. I was like, get that hair off of there. <laughs> no problem at all. <laughs> but I'm learning that for the world, um, they see a, a man with a bald head, it's nothing. They see a woman with a bald head, they don't quite know what to make of it. If there's more than one of you walking around together, then it's like, oh, okay, that's that's an organized something or other. <laughs> but if it's one woman, you know... So I have these experiences sometimes that are very, very sweet. Um, I'll be riding, I was riding on the BART and get into a really crowded car and a young man, this, this, so this young man, he, he's like, please take, take my seat. Thank you. It's very, it's very kind. And then uh, a short while later, another few days later, it happened again and this time, um, he wanted to escort me across the car. <laughs> oh, that's very kind. <laughs> and then I started to catch on when I was walking on the street in Millbrae, which is where my vihara is. And I was coming to the corner and, and waiting for the light. And this young man had come up beside me. I was wearing my, my woolly hat. And he said, I like your hat. Are you on chemo? Oh, uh, no, I'm a Buddhist nun. (laughs) And um, it started to sink in. So, you know, it's like, that wasn't exactly the heavenly messenger that I had intended to (laughs) present. (laughs) But, okay, good enough. We're all going in that direction, you know. And um, and then there was the night where there was a knock on the door, and um, I went to the door, and it was there was an ambulance outside, and a paramedic at the door, and he said, "I'm looking for this old woman that I need to take to the hospital." I said, "She's not here." You know, did they give you an address? He said, yeah, this is the address they gave me. Not, not this, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, that's down the street. He said, no, the police officer, he pointed to the police car. They said, this is the house. I thought, "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-oh. So I think they don't quite know what to make of me. (laughs) But, um, but you know, it's, it's, 
it's a really important reflection. This, this aging and sickness and death. So I can be all four heavenly messengers at the same time. <laughs> and the samana, that's the other one, the, the spiritual seeker. Uh, the one who gives up everything for the quest. Um, the Buddha did that, of course. You know, you know that story about how he went out with the chariot driver and the first time saw, you know, someone aging, someone sick, someone who died. Do you know that story? No? Okay. Yeah, some of you do. It's a very, very common, common story that, that his parents kept him away from seeing old people, sick people, or dead people, and he didn't know about that until he was in his late 20s. But you know, I kind of doubt that. He was a very intelligent, very accomplished young man, and he was being groomed to be a monarch. He knew about the world, and... um, But, you know, like myself, I know, you know, when do we really take that in as a reality, aging, sickness, and death? We can go, some of us go quite a long time before that actually hits us as, oh, all right. Um, some of us, it happens sooner. Sometimes we lose someone close to us at an early age. But a lot of times we can go quite a while. So I think, I imagine that Siddhartha Gautama probably, it just started to sink in. And since his family had so much wealth, it started to sink in that this dissatisfaction, this unhappiness is is probably not going to get satisfied from something external. And there is this like big kind of, if you want to say, big problem <laughs> of where we're going. And so I, I think his determination to, you might say, turn towards another avenue of approach to work that big problem um, makes a lot of sense. And he knew it, he had to look inside. It wasn't going to come from outside. And then, of course, you also may know that he tried um, denying the body what it needs and tormenting it some, and he found out that wasn't helpful. But what I think he did find is that this amazing body and its sensitivity is what we need in order to really find that answer. That it's right in that space where the body and the heart meet. And he did. He broke through and woke up. And so if, when I think about what is the most amazing thing about human beings, it's that we can wake up. It's not that we can be lost in delusion, it's that we can wake up. And so he did, and then 
on the night of his enlightenment, he realized that this state of dissatisfaction, you know, it's aging, sickness, and death, but it's also birth. Birth lines us up for aging, sickness, and death without any other way out. So birth, aging, sickness, and death, and then we can add to it losing what we what we care about. Or we can add to and we can add to it having to be in contact with what we don't like. Right? So anything that we want to claim to, anything that we want to push away. Or just not getting what we want. That's how it goes in the scripture and that's how it goes in the chanting we use in the monastery. All those different different things have that sense of dissatisfaction or not quite enough or not quite right um, insatiability about them and then he saw in that night that that just didn't mark this life it Marks thousands of lifetimes that we live again and again and again, continuing to shed tears, continuing to shed blood. And he said, you know, it's enough to make you dispassionate about this, to let go. And then he saw that What we do matters. What we do and what we say and what we think really matters. And he could see how people go from one lifetime to another lifetime and the conditions that get set up in one lifetime and how they play out in another lifetime. Now, some some people get the opportunity to see that for themselves in this lifetime, and a lot of us don't. But we can see it in our day-to-day life how what we do sets up a future circumstance. And then he got to the really good part, the Four Noble Truths. And I think what the Four Noble Truths, because, you know, that he, he taught that in his very first sort of Dhamma talk, sermon, if you will, after his enlightenment, and he taught that for the next 45 years. The Four Noble Truths. It really has the whole formula. You know, I found it, and now here's the map. You can get there, too. I can't take you there myself, but you can get there, too. So wonderful. And so, the first noble truth is that there is suffering, or let's let's call it the Pali word dukkha. So Pali is really valuable because it's a heart language. English is a brain language. English is good for figuring things out in the world and talking about them. English is good for mental activity. But Pali is a heart language. It expresses 
the condition of the heart or mind, heart mind. Now in Thailand, when you talk, when they talk about the mind, they point here. This is where the mind is. <laughs> so it's not the brain, kind of, it's the mind, heart mind. So that's the chitta. That's in Pali. That's chitta. And dukkha is that myriad ways of not being satisfied or suffering, the whole gamut. And so, the first noble truth that Buddha said, there is dukkha. This, right here, this is dukkha. So sometimes people say life is dukkha, but that's not what he said. And he said what we need to do with dukkha. He said what we need to do with it is we have to understand it. We have to know it. So one one way we can, well, when I first started to ponder, what is what does this mean? What did he mean by that? Then um, I thought I don't think it means that we're supposed to just suffer. No. <laughs> I don't think that was what he had in mind. There's plenty of that. There's plenty of that. I've done plenty of that. I've done plenty of going over and over and over again. Some experience, some conversation, some painful feeling. And why it shouldn't be that way. But I don't think that's what he meant. I think what he meant is, notice, hello, there's this, this uncomfortable feeling, this this, this is suffering. Just, just recognize that. Just log that. Get that. You know, um, when he went off to seek enlightenment, he, he was done with shoving it aside, covering it over, acting like it's not happening. Um, I don't know if he ever ruminated on it and drove it in deeper like I've done in my life, <laughs> but. He was, you know, like, let's put it front and center and let's look at it. You've got to be with it. Not in it. With it. And um, so he, that's what he said. You have to know it. You have to understand it. And then where you come to with it is, oh, this is understood. You get to where I um, this is understood. Okay. <clears throat> Second truth. There's a cause. And it wasn't, you know, what she said to me. That's not <laughs> that's not it. Um, that, that person is no. It's not like that. It's it's like there is a cause. And sometimes we say, okay, the cause is attachment. Right? It's some kind of an attachment. But in pondering that, it's like that's too glib. I can't really get anywhere with that. It's like, okay, let go of your attachment. Okay, I let it go. That's it. <laughs> it's still here. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. So what he said is there's a cause, and what we need to do with it is abandon it. And then we get to the place where we, where we recognize, we realize it's abandoned. That, that's what needed to be done, and now it's done. Okay, so, yeah, how? How do I let go of this thing? Have you ever had that something going on through your mind, through your mind? 
hurting the heart, and it's like you want to put it down, but it it just won't go, you know? So, hmm, okay, how do you do that? We'll get to that. And then the the third truth is that the suffering stops. There is cessation of that crummy feeling of dukkha. And then what do we do with that? We realize that it stopped. Now this too is valuable to pay attention to because it's hard to realize when things stop. Like even, you know, when where did that headache go that I had? You know, when did it stop? I didn't even notice. You know? Maybe a couple days ago we had the flu or a cold and it's gone. We, we may notice at some time, oh, I, find, I feel better now. But, you know, watching the end of things isn't our forte. We're more interested in the beginning of things. And that's okay, but it's useful to know that suffering ceases. And so that's what he said to do. You know, it ceases. And recognize, realize, it ceases. We have to realize that it ceases. It's over. It has to be directly experienced. That's what he said. You directly experience that cessation. So, the fourth noble truth, you, you know, most of you in here may know this or everyone, but the fourth noble truth is the path the stuff we can do to build ourselves up to be able to have these first three happening. And we're going to, I might talk more about that this afternoon, but the, um, and also this afternoon, maybe more about karma, karma, and how we can put an end to it. But this morning, and And through the day, the work that we're going to do is really going to be a focus on the first three noble truths because I think it's really hard to know how to actualize those. And over the years, I've been working with different techniques to to work through the dukkha and for it to cease. Because even if I don't get enlightened in this lifetime, who knows... Don't ever think it can't happen to you. Um, still, I want to get through the suffering day by day and, and, and be freer, a little bit freer, every time a little bit freer, until I can see it coming and I can just step to the side. <laughs> and so this technique of feeding your demons uh, turns out to be a really effective way to actualize those first three noble truths. And I'm going to describe how it works, and then we're going to do it. So this will be an experiential day, and we'll have these sessions where we're going to work on this stuff um, separately, and at some point you can work with a partner if you want to, but you don't have to. And you don't have to talk about anything that's going on. I mean, we will share, um, or there will be time for that and questions, and but 
This is kind of nice because you never have to talk about content. Um, if you don't want to. If you want to, okay. But the nice thing is that we pretty much get out of the content phase pretty pretty fast, really. Because what we're doing is using the body. So the Buddhist said that the that the whole thing can be learned in this fathom-long body. This is where the action is. This is why it's so great and amazing to be in a human form. It's all there. We don't have to go looking around the world for it. Maybe we have to go looking around the world for somebody who can show us how to do it, and then we can be right here. <laughs> but maybe not. And um, and so this this place that we work with, this part where the chitta, the heart, meets the kaya, the body, the heart and the body meet. It's it's a place of richness and sensitivity. So just like our hands, our, our fingers, they're they're so sensitive. They they can feel you know, they can tell the difference between the way this bell feels and the way this cushion feels, and it can actually pick up this cup. Now, if I had to write a computer program, which, you know, like in robotics, you have to write programs to do things like this, how many lines of code, you know? But our hand and our mind, our brain, it knows exactly, like, how much pressure, how, how far to reach. It's amazing. So we've got that sensitivity. We've got that ability to to observe, to take in information. And when the heart, it's going to be a little hard to do it right here, but it's more like this. It's like the heart and the body meet, and there's this space right there. And that space we can hold in a in a way that's that's filled with kindness and compassion. The other day I was thinking, don't ever set any being outside the range of your compassion. And it goes for the demons, too. So we should talk a little about what demons are. Anything that we find challenging, anything scary, anything that's in our, it's kind of in the way of being completely happy and free. So it doesn't have to be some monstrous ghoul. Sometimes they show up like that. But it could be anything. It could be anything. And why do you feed them instead of fight them? So our, our mythology in the West is very much about fighting things. Slaying the hydra. You cut off all those heads and they keep growing back. No kidding. <laughs> you take the main head and you put it under a rock. Good luck. <laughs> What's going to happen? You know, and so the idea of feeding, feeding what's angry, what's scared, um, it's not feeding to make it larger. It doesn't make it larger. It makes it smaller. It's giving that, that attention and warmth and what is really needed. And all these things that we let come out are aspects of us. We don't want to set any of them outside the range of our compassion. So, 
The way this process works, I'm going to give you a, a, an outline later when we work on this. And I, it comes out of this book, Feeding Your Demons, by Lama Sultramalioni. And she did a fantastic job with this. And I really recommend the book. It's a really good read. Um, about her life, first starting out young as a Tibetan nun, and then later leaving uh, the monastic life and marrying and having children, having an infant die, and the whole process. And what she learned um, in, the, in the Tibetan training and how she then took that and developed this process. This process is better than the ones I had used before. I started with focusing back in the, probably the 1990s. It's working with that same space where the heart and body meet, but this is much more direct. So I find that myself, I get very good results quickly, usually, and so do people. And I and it's like anything, really, you have to work with it. So um, I'll talk more about this probably later, but just to kind of give you an idea, it's like this is a process that takes around 30 minutes, 20, 30 minutes, whatever. And it's something you can do yourself. Um, and you don't need any special gear. Um, you can just sit down on a cushion or a chair, and you can put a chair in front of you or a cushion in front of you. That's the spot where your demon sits. And you don't even have to do it that way. You can do it on the bus in your head. But it's helpful in the beginning to have that to switch over there when you um, are kind of taking on a persona of that, that demon part. And... Um, when I really when I really started to get results with processes like this was when I made the commitment that I was going to use the process for everything that came up for three months. And I told my daughter that, and she said, Mom, what else are you going to have time for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, she had a point. <laughs> So yeah, I was a I was a, a mother, and I did all that stuff before I became a nun. Just so you know, nuns don't get married and have children. <laughs> that came later for me. The nun part. Um, so anyway, the way the process works is you start by setting the stage with that cushion or chair, and you take. Well, you might know what you want to work with sometimes. In that kind of situation, I would sit down specifically because something was up in my in my heart. Something happened. But sometimes, like in this kind of situation, you might need to decide, well, what do I want to put my attention on? And then you start by taking nine deep breaths. And the first three, you let go of the physical tension in your body. And, you know, using the breath to kind of bring ourselves inside is really powerful anyway. And this, you know, you focus on letting go of the tension, the physical tension. And then the next three breaths, you let go of emotional tension. Notice where that is, being held in the body and letting go of it as you breathe. 
And then the third three, the third set, is to let go of mental tension. It's interesting to kind of notice the differences. And the mental tension is like, oh, I can't do this, I can't visualize, I can't, you know, let just let go of all that angst, if you can, as much as possible. And then setting an intention that this work is for the well-being of yourself and all beings. I find that setting an intention, I mean, this all comes from Lama Sultram, but setting, setting an intention before we start anything, if we share that merit with others, it takes it to a new level. It can enrich a walk down the street. It can enrich doing your taxes. Anything is better <laughs> when you're putting, you know, good goodwill and effort into something, and then sharing that um, with others. So you start in that way, and then. What's identified on this sheet, this comes out of the appendix of that book, what's identified as the first step, step one, is to find the demon. And you just decide which you're going to work with. And on this paper in the book, she talks about demons and gods. God God with a lowercase g. And demons are the, the things that are bothering us, but gods are the things that we're craving. We want. I want that job. I want that person. I want, you know, and maybe it's even something really good that we want, but there's still that uncomfortableness in the wanting, and so, and sometimes that can really flip in a hurry into a demon. Can't it? So the, so the language is, you know, a god, a demon, a, a demon, a god, a god, demon, whatever it is, you know, whatever that is that's in the way. Finding, just deciding what, what that's going to be in that particular session, and then the next step is locating it in our body. Now, what I mean by that is when we think of something, when we have a thought, there's a feeling that comes with it. When you're meditating deeply and you're noticing your breath, and you're really still, and a thought comes into your mind, you might also notice that there's, an, there's a feeling that comes up with it, too, in the body. Ajahn Jeff, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, I don't know if you know who he is, he said, every thought creates a contraction of a muscle somewhere in your body. There's something. <laughs> well, this is kind of the practice of getting to know you know, how to feel that emotional experience showing up somewhere in the body. If it's a strong emotional experience, you probably can even identify, maybe you can think of where it might show up in the body. It can be a different place every time. It doesn't have to be one one spot for one particular topic. But when you sit and, and bring to mind this situation that you're going to work with or this feeling or this idea or this physical pain, by the way, this works with 
a lot of things. It works with addictions. It works with ailments. It works with chronic pain. It works with um, emotional stuff. It's an amazing process. And you just go notice where it is strongest in the body. And you focus there. And what you do when you focus there is you start to become aware of the qualities. You start asking questions about it. What color is it? If it had a color. You know, what is its size? What is its texture? Sometimes those feelings can feel very hard rock-like. Maybe it's black and shiny. You know? But in any case, as soon as we're asking questions about it, like I've had times when I've been so upset. It's been a while now. I hope that doesn't <laughs> I'm not superstitious. That works. <laughs> um, but being so upset about something, and then as soon as you locate it in your body and you start asking questions about it, you're in a different relationship to it. So right away, it helps. And then you start to really, you know, get more shape on it. What is it? How big is it? Okay, those questions. Even what temperature, what temperature it is. Texture, steel wool, Hmm, maybe. And then step two, you personify this demon or whatever it is. You, You let it become a being. Let it become. Is that the right phraseology? Sometimes you invite it to become a being. Sometimes it's really, it just shows up. As soon as you think, what is this being like? Poof, there's a vision, there's something. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes, hmm. And then the trick is, um, Lama Sultram says, you can use this trick any time in the process. What would you be if you were a being? And you jump right to it. And let the first thing that comes into your mind be it. It doesn't matter how corny it is or how silly or stupid or anything or how weird. Just go with it. If it's a cartoon character, go with it. Um, I, I must say, this is not about casting our family members as demons. <laughs> it's We're working with our experience, not them. <laughs> They might be excellent at being triggers, <laughs> but it's not about them. Um, and so um, when we invite it to become a being, and we start, then we start to ask questions or, or notice things about this being. And we have the being sit over there. Now, sometimes I find myself, through this whole thing, you have your eyes closed, sometimes I find myself doing this. And honestly, I, it's like I feel this going over there. Okay. Good. And um, that's not to push it away, but to see it. See it as clearly as possible. Noticing its hands, its feet, its face, its eyes, even the look in its eyes. And really getting a sense of its demeanor or its character. I know it's possible that some of you might be thinking, that never happens to me. 
Okay, fair enough. Let that go if you can. Just check that at the door because I've had people who've been really skeptical and and really like, and then afterwards, wow. (laughs) So, but don't. It doesn't matter. Kind of. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we're we're coming in contact with that space that that where the the chitta and the kaya meet. That's where we're working. That's where the Buddha wanted us to work. That's why he said it's it's here in this fathom long body. We can understand it here. So once we have an image of this demon, then we ask it questions. We ask it, what do you want from me? And and I don't I put a little too much attitude into that, but you know, like, what do you, what do you want from me? Think about an angry teenager. You know, what do you want from me? I want, I want you to die. I hate you. You know, that's the, that's the level we're at right there at the beginning. Whatever that demon, but, but we don't do answers yet. We just ask it three questions, and then we go over there, and we become, get into that demon skin, be that, and that's where the answers come. But the first, the questions are, what do you want from me? And then what do you, what do you need from, what do you really need from me? What do you think the angry teenager is going to say? Any ideas? Your attention. Yeah, your attention. Independence. Independence. I want to be respected. Love. 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 Yes. Love. I gotta say, this process is about brutal honesty. Brutal honesty. Brutal isn't quite the right word. Um, <clears throat> what I mean is, we're not gonna wake up unless we're absolutely honest and kind of relentless about it. So if the teenager is really honest and there's nothing in the way, yeah, they might say something really revealing and vulnerable, right? That would be great, because then we would know what to give them. My teenager would say nothing. Mm, yeah, and you know, the demon might not want to say anything either. And I think what that means is there's a need for this space to be even more compassionate and kind. So the role we play through this whole thing is is the grown up, <laughs> the 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 mature witness self, the one that watches your your breath, you know, that's the one. And the the demon is that wounded part. Right? And so we ask those three quite oh and the third question is the is the one that gives you the the key. How will you feel when you get what you need? Now, as soon as we ask those questions, then we go to our other side and we sit there. And you really let yourself settle into the demon's body and feel what it's like over there. And that in itself can be very revealing. Because so often, when what we see and what that feels like in that skin is different. 
I learned that when I was an individual contributor in a company and then I got into a management role. As an individual contributor, a worker, I thought the managers like had all the power. <laughs> I think there are some managers in the room, like the people laughing. <laughs> If you've ever managed anything, organized anything, that you couldn't do the work yourself, you are so vulnerable. (laughs) So sometimes a demon can look really vicious, angry, threatening. And you get over there inside and really just feel it. I'm telling you, this is so interesting because it's not like it doesn't come out of the head. You don't think about it. You don't think about it ahead of time. You don't wonder what it's going to be. You just let the the images, the knowledge, the answers come from that deep space inside. So we're working with heart space, intuition. That's something that's it's hidden from the mind. If if this was apparent to our thinking mind, we would have solved this problem already. Because the thinking mind's really good at that. So we move over there, we become the demon. We feel what that feels like, and then we let the answers to the questions come. And you just complete the sentences. What I want from you is... What I need from you is... And what I'll feel when I get what I need is... And that's the one you want to remember. What that demon is going to feel when it gets satisfied, when it gets what it needs. What's that teenager going to feel like? Loved? Safe? Who knows? And then you come back to your own spot. And you take a minute to get into your own skin again. And you see the demon over there in your mind's eye. And then you let your body dissolve into a nectar that is that quality that the demon will feel. So that demon is going to be nourished by that love or that safety or that respect or that peace or whatever it is that they would feel if they were completely they got what they need as much as they need so this idea of letting your body dissolve comes right out of the ancient practice that Lama Sultram based this process on for some of us we don't want to let our body dissolve because we've had Serious traumatic experiences in our background where we've disassociated from our bodies. And for the longest time, I didn't let my body, I, I, it just didn't come that way. It didn't, it didn't dissolve. And so that's totally okay. You can let the nectar just kind of emanate from you in some way. It doesn't have to be logical. It's just, just let the nectar come. The nectar will have a color and a, and a texture. Sometimes 
it flows over there and the demon laps it up with its hands and sometimes it drinks it with a straw it can roll in it it can you know but it's a nectar and it's it's this beautiful quality whatever the quality is and it's absolutely boundless there's no shortage there's no limitation it is as much as that demon wants it can have and you can just give freely so when the body when when in when we're in our body and it turns into love <laughs> a nectar of love it turns into a nectar of peace or a nectar of safety or a nectar of whatever things are different than where you started from let me tell you <laughs> and then feeding letting this being um, eat causes the being to change and at the moment when this being is completely satisfied it's it it's very different sometimes they disappear altogether lama sultra tells a lot of great stories in her book you know for one woman at one one time uh, the demon got up and left the room and put a sign on the door gone fishing <laughs> a lot of times they turn into something else so i recently had a demon um that appeared as a very ferocious black wolf really vicious looking and all of its fur was tipped in co- iridescent blue <laughs> wow and um as the demon was fed it transformed into the most wonderful black dog and this dog came around with me for days everywhere i went i'll tell you more about that in a minute okay so what happens with this being that that it becomes this oftentimes is an ally so what happens is when we when we have some um emotional experience that we're that we're working with that we're struggling with or we're inhibited by that is really locking up tying up some energy of ours and when we release that that energy is free to be a positive supportive creative force in us and so and protective often so when when there's whatever is left over there if there's nothing left over there you can invite an ally to come in and see who shows up if you if there's some creature over there uh, a nice black dog or one time it was a pink plushy polar bear they can be anything uh, i one time like a 15 foot tall onyx guanyin living it was amazing anyway <laughs> you just never know what might happen and then you ask this you ask it if it's your ally if it is if you get that sense that it is then you ask it four questions if it's not your ally you can invite an ally to come in and see what happens and then if an ally comes in you can ask it these four questions 
And it's the same kind of process as when the demon was over there. You ask it the questions, and when you've asked it, you turn around and you become the ally. Again, with the ally, you're noticing all of its qualities, its color, its shape, its texture. And then the questions are, how will you help me? How will you protect me? What pledge or promise do you make to me? And how can I access you? And these questions also come out of the ancient practice of chuck, which is what this is based on. And when you ask those questions, you go over there and you become, you get into the allies space and form and skin and then let the answers arise out of that intuitive place. And once that happens, um, you come back to your space and let that ally absorb into you and let yourself absorb into emptiness and rest in that emptiness, whatever that means to you, like just becoming still and holding that energy. Now the the ally being can be a really big help to us in our life. A lot of the things we work with that we are challenged by are things that happen over and over again. When I started doing that make that commitment of using the process for everything that came up for three months, you know, I thought I had a whole lot of problems, but actually it turned out to be one. <laughs> kind of all starts to resolve to one thing. And, and, and when you get right down at the core of it, what I learned was it was that feeling of, I'm not good enough. And when you, when you work with people, you start to realize that pretty much everybody has some flavor of that. Feeling unworthy, not good enough, not lovable. Yeah, there are different flavors, but the thing is, even, even if we don't go all the way down to that core um, misunderstanding about ourselves, we can have something that recurs, some dynamic that recurs with another person in our life, or maybe with, you know, the, the players change, but the dynamic stays the same because we're still doing that and somehow attracting that or whatever it is. And, and then, we can, we can have this knowledge that what's really needed is that safety, that love, that, that whatever that came up in the session, and that that ally is there. And whatever it promised us, it will be there to deliver it. And we have a way of accessing it. So there are people who use this practice a lot who make little figurines or have little images of their allies um, Lama Sultram talked about someone who has a shelf in her house with all her allies on it. She'll just grab one and stick it in her pocket on the way to work. You know, <laughs> ways to remind ourselves. So this black dog was amazing. Whenever I sensed its energy there, I was filled with that solidity and strength. When we, when we, ch- our energy changes, then we're different in that dynamic. And then there's a very good chance that things will get worse 
When you're different in a dynamic, people freak out. Even if you're better than ever. Even if you're more solid and stable, it still is, it, it upsets the whole thing. But if you can, you know, hang with your ally and, and stay grounded and balanced, the next time it happens, it won't be as bad. And then it's pretty soon, it doesn't happen anymore. This is what I've experienced. So, what are your questions before we do it? I know that was a lot, so I hope it wasn't too much. All in one go. I'm having trouble uh, understanding how this would work if what the issue is is a a realistic fear of something that's Real. So the real fear has two components, right? It has what what is happening out there. You know, some of these things that we <coughs> might be afraid of are really real and they're really big, right? But that's only one side of it. The other side is how we are with it. That's what we're working with. So this fear that we have is not helping even though that thing out there is menacing. You know? Mm -hmm. Okay. So this work can help us reorganize this part, us. We can be free of the fear. Then we still need to do whatever needs to be done for protection and safety and, you know, all of that. Ultimately, we're not going to be safe in this life. So, but we can be completely happy and satisfied, enlightened. And and say we get to that point where, well, it's okay. We'll talk more about that this afternoon because where this sits in the whole process of awakening, I think is so precious. And, And we'll talk more about that this afternoon. But does that answer your question for now? And not for now. Okay. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Just to clarify, so the demon that we're going to be feeding mm-hmm. is actually then, I think, the uh, the negative or painful emotional response yep. to something that's in our life. So we're going to personify that negative, painful response or reaction emotion. That is that what Yes, beautifully said. Yes, we are going to personify the negative or painful reaction, emotional reaction to something that is triggering us. It's not about the trigger, it's about the experience that we have, which is really where the pain is. You know, the Buddha talked about two darts, right? The first dart is the arrow going into the body and the second dart is all the upset around it. And it's the upset around it that he said, that's that's the trouble, that one. He's got the poison. The first start, that's just human life. <clears throat> Things happen. Yep, very good. Yes? So when I think of the term demon, there's kind of some prepackaged images that come to mind. A lot of them are like carved on Tibetan 
Yes. Yes. And uh, and then when I think of allies, there are also so. I can see that that for me, I would be getting all mental about. Oh, I don't want to go for the stereotype. What's the real? <laughs> yes. So is it okay to just fake it until the authentic me? No. No. What What I would recommend, what Lama Sultram says, is get out of your head and just stay in your body. So through this process, when we start to so so first of all. Um, what might the first image that might come might be one of those common stereotypes, and that's totally fine. That's totally fine. But it's like the, the I, I'm so glad you asked this question in the way that you did because it's like we we might have the temptation to think about what it should be instead of feel what it is. And so if we go if if we start to kind of reason about it. I recommend go into your body again. Go back to that place in your body. Stay in your body. Does that make sense? Harder to do than to think about doing. Yes, yes it is. But there's a reason for it. Um, A lot of times what comes through the intuition is surprising. And... That's when the, the thinking mind might kick in and say, oh, no, I can't be that. <laughs> you know? And then you say, oh, shh, I'm going to stick with what comes up into it intuitively. But it's like the reason that the three noble truths, the first three noble truths are difficult is because we can't reason our way through it. We can't wake up by reasoning our way through enlightenment. We have to do it through this intuitive kind of almost magical place. And so we do have that wish to make it more concrete and to have it more set up and all that, but it really, the the gold, you find the gold in just gently setting that aside and going back into the body and letting it arise and not worry what arises. Don't feel like you have to accomplish something. It's okay. Whatever happens. The more relaxed we become and the more we trust that we'll see whatever we need to see, the more will come. And so, you know, we can't expect to sit down the first time at the piano ever and play the concerto. If we could, we probably had did that a whole bunch of times in a past life. That'd be pretty amazing. So regardless of what we try the first time, we need to just, you know, let it be what it is and, and just learn what we can learn and be gentle. Is that? You, you will? I, I have to have the experience before I can believe that I can have <laughs> Yes. You know, the whole thing about the magical aspect of it. It's, it's like... Yeah. There's the desire that comes from wanting magic to work, and then there's the resistance to, you know, this can't be real because it comes from somewhere where I can't think it. Oh, yes. And also the other thing that happens is that we have people have a tendency to say, well, what if I'm just making this up? And Lama Sultram says, well, you are making this up. (laughs) So go ahead and make it up, but just try not to do it with a thinking mind. (laughs) 
it's okay. This is all just aspects of you and me and all of us. Okay, so first behind and then, yeah. The question I had is when you spoke about um, gods and demons, um, I can really feel that inside myself, how how quickly that would be described. Mm -hmm. And so in this process, I just let that let that imagination flow and it will just become what it does. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it becomes. If it's if in that moment it's more godlike or more demon-like. I mean, I've had quote-unquote demons that are like, you know, a sweet little girl that's, you know, suffering and loss. It could be anything. Um, the way you outlined this is sort of like a, a very deliberate process of like you find the emotion and you personify it. Do you ever find the the image suggests itself first and then you sort of have to kind of figure out like what's going on with it? Like, no. Okay. I think that there might be some um, value in understanding what that image is about, but I think it's really important to start with the, the dukkha. And it's really like, that's what the Buddha said too. <laughs> start with the dukkha. <laughs> and then whatever other... You know, information our chitta wants to divulge, great. Just point. So, in, if I'm hearing that correct, um, so to, yeah, to go with the kind of the suffering, the dukkha that is, that presents itself that we all already know is quite present and present quite often versus the whatever imagery arises mm-hmm. in the mind as yeah. meditating there might be some image that arises yeah. oh med- yeah I- imagery I mean any meditator is subject to any kind of imagery that might come up I mean it can be nimittas these are called nimittas and usually teachers recommend they don't don't put too much, don't put too much energy in that direction just kind of let that go let it be what it is this is different I would say um, this is <clears throat> like we said, it's a deliberate process of being with the dukkha and allowing it to take a shape that we can then work with and understand. It's kind of like how do you get how do you get to that root of suffering? So now we're back to the truths, the noble truths. So we're, the dukkha, the dukkha is that the demon is representing that dukkha. We're becoming, we're getting to know it and understand it, like the Buddha said we should, by asking it these questions. When I go over there and I'm sitting there in the skin of the, the demon, I feel like that first noble truth, okay, I understand something about this now. I understand something by feeling what this feels like on the inside of it. I can't get there from my mind that wants to push it away or fight with it or whatever, um, get away from it. And so <clears throat> the second noble truth, there is a cause to me, that comes out of that third question. What will you feel when you get what you need? I feel a lack of love. I feel a lack of protection, safety. I feel, you know, whatever that is. Now I know the specific flavor of the cause of this dukkha. Once you know the specific flavor of the cause of the dukkha, then you can open up and give. Yeah. Well, that goes to the question I have about... Um, that have not had gone through the process. 
how difficult is it to get to some specificity? Yeah, I, I mean the 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 feelings. <clears throat> first of all, we the feeling being a mix of things. Okay, I don't know if this is what you mean, but what comes to my mind when when it when I think of a feeling being a mix of things, the feeling is kind of influenced by different external aspects. But when we look for it in the body, it's a feeling in the body. It's an energetic sensation, a tightness in the chest. Regardless of whether this tightness in the chest gets created by some complex collection of things or not is irrelevant at this point. So the story gets left aside completely. We've shifted away from the content and into just the feeling experience. So once that you've got that feeling experience and you're ask, you're asking questions about that, so that's where the answers come through. So it does get kind of specific. Yeah, as you ask questions. Yeah, the questions even not not even the, the specific questions you ask the demon, but even before that, what color is this? What texture is it? So I had I had this kind of. Oh, how is described this thing? It was um, the texture was like a ball with steel wool around it, or something. You know, like <laughs> the demon turned out to be a dinner plate size of Chinese noodles, dinner <laughs> with black legs and tentacles coming out. I mean, who knows? Spinning. Okay, <laughs> whatever it is, um, it's completely separate from whatever it was that triggered this whole thing and whatever it is that occupies my mind around this problem and it gives me the chance to get kind of under underneath it or behind it and then the third noble truth the cessation happens as we are feeding and experiencing this quality that somewhere somehow inside seem to be lacking and is now present and measureless. Yeah. So as we sit at the beginning of the meditation, does the does the feeling, this body sense that we feel within our body come from our intent? And that's what you were talking about, like setting our intention that we're gonna somehow connect with that feeling and our intention is to understand it and to bring compassion to it? I would say the intention that we set in the beginning is just that this is going to benefit us and all beings. The um, the thing that we do with our intention and attention in the process is just I'll bring to mind this experience that causes this dukkha for me. And if that, and feel where it feels in the body. You know, somebody recently had like a mohawk on their head. That's where the feeling was. Tight kind of thing happening on her head. Um, but a lot of times it's in the throat or the heart area or the stomach or who knows where. Could be anywhere where it presents itself. And what's presenting itself is some kind of feeling sensation. And sometimes if it's, 
Um, you want to sometimes if it's not very clear, then you can intensify it by bringing a memory of that experience into focus in your mind. You remember it and you feel it more, and you intensify that feeling in that area, and then you just go from there with it. Very good. Someone else had a question, I think. Anyone? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <coughs> um, I'm feeling a little scared of this process um, because I've made progress uh, in my practice and in the study of the suttas and the dharma and. I've been finding that it's grounding what I've been doing. Uh-huh. And what you're describing is kind of like tossing me in the air. Mm. I mean, the magical mystery stuff. <laughs> kind of, um, it's frightening. <clears throat> and it, it feels like it could take me off course. Right. Of where I feel like I've been heading with what seems to me to be an intrinsic simplicity uh-huh. of the practice that I've been mm-hmm. working with mm-hmm. now becomes the way it's described in this practice, very complicated, where there's rooms to ways to get lost. And okay. Ways to okay. Lie. I'm glad I'm glad you shared that because my experience of it is it's not like that. It's not um, it's it, the the process is really very structured, you know, in that you you see what's there, you ask questions. It may sound complicated, but I'm going to lead lead you through it. So that part of, of what the components are will be really straightforward. In terms of what kind of presents itself in the mind, it's still all you. You know, I mean, it, sometimes we can feel afraid that something that's really upsetting is going to come up, and the reality is, and Lama Sultram says this too. First of all, she says that in the Decades that she's done this, no one has ever had anything bad happen to them. Nothing bad has happened. And I think that's partly because, you know, this is still our own mind. We're letting this govern it. It's not like we're pushing anything. We're not suggesting you have to go down that alley or anything like that. So, you know, maybe the first time it's something light. Maybe it's not the biggest thing ever. But even if it were, as soon as we let the thing we're most afraid of out into the into the open, it gets smaller. So even though I'm saying let the let the answers come from inside, it's not like we're just like opening this door to the demon world or something. It's not like that at all. It's just it's just letting the knowledge come out. I hope that helps. Um I'm going to give it a try, definitely. Okay. But, um, I just want to kind of express my apprehension. Yeah, that, sure. You know, the um, the construct I've been working with, I'm comfortable with, and this construct is like, I mean, I was listening to Aya Kema yesterday mm-hmm. on Dharma Seed, and she says, don't keep trying different things. Pick something and stick with it, you know? And so I, I, I'm going to try this because I want to experience it. Yeah. But I'm, 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 yeah. Well, everything's okay for a while now. Now this is, you know, and it's not necessarily fear of what's going to come up. It's it's fear of getting lost where I thought I was. So my 
own experience around the many, 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 many times I've heard teachers don't try different things, you know, um, stick with something, really relates to when people want to, you know, well, I'll go see this Buddhist teacher, and then I'll go try Sufism, and I'll do this thing, and then I'll, you know, like, really on the surface. But when it comes to using different tools within a discipline, like Buddhism, like the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha gave many, many different tools, and he recommended using them for different purposes. And, and, I've been taught in my monastic life, and I think very wisely so, that it's important to have different tools and to become good at using them. So maybe for a while a hammer is really the thing we need, and we use it and use it and use it, but then at some point we need a saw. And that's where I see these different kinds of practices. It's still the Buddha Dharma. Right now, it makes I see that because I mean we could meditate on any kind of object, forty-two objects. We could meditate on eternal grounds. We could meditate on yes. So yes, putting it in that context helps. Okay. Yes. If this is too long, uh, too much of a side path, I totally get that. But I think I'm asking just sort of for for maybe a, a number of people. What led someone who has robed and practiced in the Vipassana tradition to seek a practice from the Tibetan tradition, which has some kind of different fundamentals? Yeah, I I didn't actually seek it. Um, So, so first of all, the when I talked about using different different um, processes like this, it was before I became a nun. And it was when I was, I started when I was in training as an interfaith minister in four, year, four years of seminary. And we were taught how to help people use the focusing process for working with their emotional experience. And then, um, and then I moved on to uh, working with Marlena Lyons and Jet Pissaris. They're authors of a book called Undefended Love. And so I, I worked with them for a couple of, two, three years in in using a similar kind of process, but it wasn't as direct as this one. This one came to me through the senior nuns that I was living with. And why seek it? Well, there's sometimes an attitude that I've run into in the monastery where, um, you know, the traditional practice done like this, this is enough. And then you run into things with the people you're living with where it's not quite working. (laughs) And I'll tell you, monasteries can be really intense places. (laughs) And so there are times when, and I, I, I feel like the nuns are really pretty good at this. They're pretty good at saying, okay, this, what's, we need something else here. And they're very interested in understanding. So from my perspective, this is the Four Noble Truths. You can't get any more traditional in Theravada than that. The fact that it comes through the gateway of a Tibetan practice, okie dokie. <laughs> okay, that was <laughs> Indiana coming through. <laughs> but that's my, that's my sort of 
where I'm at with it. I'm really practical. Right. That, that <laughs> certainly works for me, but I, I think sometimes for people it can feel like, wait a minute, I thought I was over here and one. Yeah. And it's yeah. kind of feeding off of Alice's yeah. Yeah. question. Yeah, I appreciate that question. Yeah, and um, I just I just think if we can um, if we can work with the four noble truths, that may well be enough. <laughs> I don't want to give up on a, on a study though. <laughs> That's important. <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. The Buddha's teachings are. from what I can tell, a complete system. It's just how do we take the suttas and the vinaya and apply it in our life directly instead of it just be conceptual? How do we make that live? Because that's that he said that's what we have to do. We have to know it for ourselves. We have to realize it for ourselves. We have to, we have to be on the inside of the experience and go, oh, that's that's what he was talking about. It never quite feels like it sounds in the books. It's so much more rich. Yeah. Oh, just a quick question. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're familiar with the Kobe therapy and how this process is like similar. I'm not familiar with it. But I do know that there are um, therapeutic processes that look like this. So I think Lama Sultram, you know, kind of relied on some of that. And and yet because it's, you know, I just, because I see it as the Four Noble Truths, um, I want to say I think it's more than a psychological process. And there's nothing wrong with psychological processes. And also, when I was in therapy, that was also before I became a nun, and I look back, everything that worked was something the Buddha taught. (laughs) It's like, so let's use it, you know, use it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Just another... Fast question, um, My understanding of the historical Buddha is that before he attained enlightenment, as he sat, a Mara came and tempted him. And so, can you talk a little bit about the demons that we are going to invite and try to understand and have compassion toward today, and how that relates to the story of Mara mm-hmm. coming to visit mm-hmm. the Buddha? Well, first of all, when I think about the Buddha sitting there and Mara and Mara's daughters and all whatnot, you know, or Jesus in the desert, mm-hmm. it's kind of a, a common theme, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You're right on the edge of breakthrough, and you think, do I really want to go through with this? <clears throat> Look at what I'm leaving behind. Um, he had a wife. He had a son. Um, there's good reason to believe that he loved them very much. And he saw where it was all heading. 
And I think it was pretty easy for him to say, no, that's not interesting to me. I, I, well, that's not quite right, but I know that's not the way. And it happens for people who ordain, too. I think it's just really natural for the imagery or the, um, <clears throat> the reflections to come up around, you know, what you're, re- what you're setting aside. Now, how does that relate to what we're going to do today? Um, I don't think it's so related, really. I think, first of all, I want to say that we're not inviting demons over. <laughs> or, or out, <laughs> or any of that. We're, we're just going to feel what it feels like when we're suffering in our body. And we're going to let that take a shape so we can have a dialogue with it and understand it. That's all we're doing. And it's good to know that Mara um, was, um, what do I want to say, different, like uh, Venerable Mogalana, Maha Mogalana, was Mara for some like 20-some lifetimes, and then later became one of the Buddha's chief disciples. I love that about Buddhism. There is a path of spiritual recovery, no matter what we've done. Sad. And then the, the, the work is finding it. What is that path of spiritual recovery for the things that I've done? How do I wear away that karma? It doesn't come from rites and rituals. It doesn't come from beating myself up. It doesn't come from hating myself. It doesn't come from letting someone else hurt me. It doesn't come from acting like I'm better than I feel like I am. You could probably add a whole bunch of things to that list. But it does come from keeping precepts. It comes from being generous. It comes from meditation, concentration, mindfulness. And it comes from developing wisdom. Compassion is the natural arising. And kindness are the natural things that arise out of practicing the Dhamma. The more we do those things, the more we develop that kama, that bright kama. And we do this kind of process where we let ourselves be in contact with the suffering, with the kama from the past, the more we wear it away. And the Buddha says this in the numerical discourses. He said, it's by practicing sila, virtue, samadhi, and panya, wisdom, that then the practitioner comes in contact with that old kama again and again. We come in contact with it again and again, and through that, we wear it away. And it ends. 
This, to me, is the way, one way that we can come in contact with it again and again. We come in contact with it in a way that we apply wisdom to it. And then, because we're, that feeling comes. What's kama? That feeling comes. Regardless of what the external circumstances are, it's, a, it's the feeling that's really where we experience it. Because it's not the experience of the body itself with physical sensation that's the that's the issue it's the feeling in the mind it's the mental feeling and that's what we contact again and again and gets worn away because we contacted with this understanding with this wisdom Yes, a short break, and then we'll do the process before we have lunch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.